Good morning, everyone, and uh, good morning to those who are joining us online from home. Uh, this morning, before we dive into Hebrews, I do want to take a moment, as has been our uh, custom, to pray for another local church, like-minded church that is about the same kingdom work that we are. So I want to pray for Saratoga Abundant Life this morning. Um, some of you may even know uh, Pastor Glenn Dion, the lead pastor there. Um, when I first came up to Saratoga, probably even before we officially started Terra Nova Church and launched, um, uh, Saratoga Abundant Life hosted something called a pastor's prayer breakfast every Tuesday morning. And it was my first opportunity to get to know the elders at the gate, if you will, to use a biblical expression, those who uh, were God's people in this community shepherding the flock, the Big C Church. And so that's where I first met Glenn and many of the other pastors, and I'm grateful. It's just really reflective of their heart, uh, which is... Uh, um, a, a kingdom mindset that sees uh, all of the churches in this area as essential and that we seek to partner with each other um, around the core things of the gospel. That's, that's just been Saratoga Abundant Life's heart. And even when I reached out to Pastor Glenn, I'm like, how can we pray for you guys? What can we lift up? He's like, just, just pray that the Big C Church would be unified. You know, that's our heart. And so I want to do that uh, just for a moment here. And I'd ask you to join me in that. Father, we are thankful this morning to be a part of something bigger than ourselves that you have called the ecclesia, the church, your bride, that you have called us. We are the called out ones from, uh, that you have called to yourself. Thank you that we are not in this journey alone. We have each other here within the walls of Terra Nova Church, this family, which I'm so thankful and grateful for. And I'm also thankful and grateful for our uh, brothers in Christ, and sisters in Christ at Saratoga Abundant Life. Please bless them this morning. Empower their time of worship uh, by your spirit that your word would be preached uh, in power and that your people will be lifted up in worship to see you rightly. Please uh, bless Pastor Glenn as he leads that flock. And Lord, we just ask in light of his own heart and burden that you would unify the church, your people, and that that would end up being a light to our culture. And Lord, while we're, while we're um, speaking to you and lifting these prayers up, we just lift up our the mothers amongst us this morning that we are so grateful and thankful for, that as Pastor Matt said, none of us would be here without. Would you strengthen them? Would you smile upon them in such a way that they would know very personally that you are pleased with them, that you delight in them? May they know your favor um, this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may know this about me, others may not. Growing up, I played the violin. And... Uh, um, I'm three years my sister's junior. I don't think she's here this morning, so I'll speak freely about her, Michelle. <laughs> um, all good, though. She, the, the hardest part she'd have with what I'm about to say is embarrassment because of how glowingly I'll speak of her. But she played the violin, I think we started in either kindergarten or first grade. So I, I saw her, you know, uh, for a few years playing it. So when it was my opportunity, I chose to follow in her footsteps, and I picked up the violin and started playing too. And I think early on, at least my perception, as I remember, is that we practiced about the same amount. The reality is probably we did not. Um, uh, I practiced more. No, the other way around. Um, but uh, it wasn't long before my sister chose to go narrow and deep um, in really perfecting the craft of playing the violin. And so she especially got into middle and high school. Um, she started taking private lessons, and she took music theory classes at our school, and then she went on for her undergrad and graduate work to, for music education and performance, and so she became very proficient. Um, I, on the other hand, uh, diversified my interests pretty early on. 
And so, I mean, what could I do? I didn't have as much time to practice my violin and, you know, instead kind of went deeply into, um, you know, at my academics and sports and student council and things like that. And probably by the time I was a junior, a sophomore, junior, I plateaued in my skills as a violinist as junior and senior years got busy and then basically stopped playing altogether after high school. Today, I would say I am a perpetually, will be a perpetually mediocre uh, 41-year-old musician. I, I could pick my violin back up and, 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 and grow a little bit, but it is really hard once you are older, as, as some of us know here, uh, to be able to perfect a craft, especially on an instrument, relative to when you were young and had that opportunity. Whereas those of you who know my sister or have heard her play, that perseverance on her part led to just being able to produce beautiful sounds from that instrument. And some of you have heard her even on the worship team. So why do I share this illustration? Well, it's meant to be a, a metaphor to help us kind of re-enter into Hebrews 6, where we took a break last week, but the prior two weeks before that, we had been spending some time, Hebrews 5 into chapter 6. And the metaphor is meant to convey the idea that we looked at last time, that if we don't press on to maturity while we have the opportunity, we may reach a point in time where we can grow no longer. Now, the metaphor falls apart at a, at a certain point, right? There's nothing wrong with me and the illustration I gave of having chosen to diversify and explore other things. But as a Christian, as we talked about in that first week, starting in chapter 5, verse 11, we talked about how pursuing maturity as a Christian is not an option. It's a fundamental expectation. It's more like breathing or eating food than it is whether or not we're going to pick up our you know, coffee from Starbucks this morning or wherever you choose to get your coffee. And I tried to show a couple of weeks ago then, in, ch- in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 6, that the author, author warned that if those people continued in their state of immaturity, they might reach a point of no return, and repentance and growth for them might become impossible. Now, as we also talked about, Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, that particular passage, is one of the most challenging, notoriously challenging passages in all of the New Testament. Uh, and I humbly unpacked my conclusion that I drew that of the loss of rewards view on what's going on there. Um, there are several other views that, that theologians, Christians, and pastors have taken throughout the ages. One of them that's popular, for example, is the tests of genuineness view that I unpacked briefly. The idea that those, in fact, were not believers in view at that point. They just appeared to be, and they're falling away. The understanding of that word apostate to mean a rejection of Christ just indicated they were never a true believer to begin with. So there are other views there. However, I unpacked how I believe those were believers. He was still addressing in those five verses. Um, And you can go back and listen to that sermon for, for all the reasons there. We talked briefly about how falling away, that term that's used there, can be better understood. Uh, perhaps to mean a prolonged disobedience rather than this apostasy of a complete rejection of Christ. And we talked about how the author probably had Numbers 14 in view, this uh, event in the life of God's people, Israel, the, the wilderness wanderers, who they were God's covenant people. They were his people. But they continued to grumble and complain. They weren't trusting God, and they reached this point of no return where God said, I forgive you, but you are no longer going to be able to press into the promised land. They lost out on that opportunity. They were denied entrance um, because of a hardness of heart that seemed to lead to this arresting of their growth. They didn't stop being God's covenant people. He continued to provide manna and water for them as they wandered in the wilderness for those 40 years. 
but they were not able to move forward. They missed out on that reward, that opportunity to enter into God's promised land. So a practical question that has arisen since then in in multiple conversations I've had, and it's a good one, is, okay, well, when it comes to applying that to our lives and to discipleship and Christian community, well, what if you worry that you're the person who's entered that state, you presumed upon God's grace too long so that you're in this arrested state of spiritual development and can't move forward any further? Or what if you feel like you know somebody who's in that place? Is it just hopeless for you or for them? And, And as I thought about it over the last couple of weeks. Here's what I, as I went back to the passage, I took away. That if that's where we linger, if that's our takeaway, then we actually miss the point of the author that he's trying to convey here. The warning is real. I don't believe it was hypothetical, but the purpose was not to reach a verdict about who had and had not entered that state. The purpose was to call them, to compel them to repentance. It was a plea for them to grow while they still had the opportunity to do so. And as we're about to see, the author of Hebrews has a confidence that they would not enter this state. So he's not pronouncing, he wasn't pronouncing this existing condition that they were in. He was warning them of a possible condition that they could enter. But as long as they could hear, as long as they could respond in repentance, then they should repent. That's his point. That's his hope that he has for them. That's why he's repeated Psalm 95 of that Numbers 14 encounter multiple times. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. That's his plea. That's his point. So our responsibility in response to a passage like that, both personally and pastorally, is always to hope on behalf of ourselves and those around us to presume the possibility for repentance still exists. We don't need to worry about diagnosing who has or has not crossed that line. That's not the point of that passage. Only God knows that. And so how should we respond? Sobered by that possibility, personally. Let it light a fire underneath you in your own walk with Jesus. The point isn't to sort out who does or does not qualify to be stuck in immaturity. And for that matter, even if it was the tests of genuineness view, that these weren't real believers who apostatized and fell away, the point would not be to determine who is and who's not an apostate. We, we know it's a possibility, And so it informs us pastorally. But practically, we never give up on that person, right? We would pray for them. We would continue to pursue them as God leads in hopes they can still repent. That is the point. That is our job in our own personal lives and in each other's lives, to call each other, stir each other up to this repentance and following after Jesus. So this principle to not give up hope is also inferred by the next four verses we're going to enter into today. Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 12. Because the author here, we see he wasn't presuming to know who had or had not crossed that line. And in fact, his posture was one of hopefulness that none of them had. And he charges them earnestly to seek after God, as we'll see. So open in your Bibles, if you have one, to Hebrews 9. We'll be in verses 9, or excuse me, Hebrews 6. We'll be in verses 9 through 12. And if you want to use one of those blue ESV Bibles in the pew rack, that's on page 1190. And it should be on the screen behind me as well. And once you've found your place, uh, please stand for me, uh, with me for the reading of God's word.
though we speak in this way, and he's speaking of the harsh warning that he had just given, yet, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and inheritance uh, and patience inherit the promises. Lord, would you graciously open our eyes to see what you are telling us through your word, the value of your word. Help us to treasure the opportunity it is for us to meet you in your word and to see how radical your grace and your love and your holiness are this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Briefly, our outline of where we're going for today, we're going to really just kind of take it verse by verse. Um, So we'll look at verse 9, and we'll see a strong confidence, first of all, that's exuded by the author in uh, the station of these Christians as believers. Um, We will see in verse 10 the reasons that he gives for his confidence, which are God's righteous character as well as the evidence of a sincere faith on display. And then verse 11, we'll see a strong desire that the author expresses for uh, his readers to have a full assurance of their salvation, a full assurance of hope and of their eternal destiny. And then fourthly, the reasons for that desire, which is because he desires for them not to go sluggish, in particular in their actions, as we'll see, and in order to, uh, for their lives to mirror the faithful who have gone before. So that's kind of the direction we'll be going. So let's take a look at verse 9. And this strong confidence that the author has in, uh, of his, of his um, readers' station, of their, of their situation of being saved. I'll just read that again. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. That word beloved there, it's so important to catch, especially following a warning like the one that we just read about. It's this powerful term of affection that he uses toward these believers that's only used one time in Hebrews right here. And it's translated in other translations. If you do have an NIV or some other translation, it'll it'll say dear friends. It's this deep expression of love. And it's important to convey on the heels of such a harsh warning that he has just given. But what we see is that despite the real warning that he's just given, the author is nonetheless confident that something better will be the case for those that he's preaching to than might seem to be the end of those he's just talked about in the warning. By the way, that word for confidence that he has um, uh, in them for better things, it's the same word for confidence that Paul uses in Philippians 1.6 when he says, I am sure of this or I am confident of this, that God will complete the good work that he's begun in you. It's that level of confidence that he has. So he says, confident, I'm confident of better things, things that belong to salvation. We're not told explicitly what those things are, but presumably they're things that have to do with the marks of a maturing, growing Christian, um, continuing to grow in Christ-likeness. So you would not be alone if you felt some kind of whiplash between the last passage of Hebrews and this one. It could seem like the author is a little bit erratic here, a little bit unstable. There's this harsh warning that seems to be saying one thing and implying one thing, followed by this affectionate confidence 
that he actually doesn't expect that to be true of his readers. But listen, this can be an appropriate display of godly love, can it not? There are many people in here who are parents this morning who have had this situation unfold before their eyes. Your child is on the verge of running out into the road or feet away from a a socket, an electrical socket in the wall, and they're eyeballing it, and you don't have one of those plugs in there, and they're going over there to reach. And in either case, the road or the... Stop! Don't go any further! Right? It's... And it it may seem abrasive to them. It may seem harsh to them. But it's about their safety. We don't want them to get hurt. And then once we know we have their attention, once we know they're okay, we reassure them of the truth of the matter. I don't want you to get hurt. Please know I love you. I only speak to to you in this way because I love you. If you trust me, you're going to be okay. Right? So this, this idea of... Sometimes harshness being accompanied by an assurance such as we're seeing here is not unprecedented. That They're both examples of what it looks like to love. We warn those we love because we don't want to see them get hurt. We also always hope for better for those that we love. Love always hopes. The famous expression about what love is from 1 Corinthians thirteen seven. right? Love always hopes. We don't want to see those we love remain where they are, but more than that, we, we have a vision for who we see them becoming as if it's already come to fruition. That's a form of love as well, uh, hoping for the best for those around us. And I think that that is what's going on here with the author. It's a warning that's real, followed by a genuine confidence of something better that he sees for their future. Next in verse 10, we see the reason for this confidence. What reason does the author have for this confidence? Again, verse 10 says, For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. So he gives a twofold reason for the confidence. Number one is God's righteous character. His confidence is rooted in who God is. And number two, the evidence of a sincere faith that he sees in them. So first, God's righteous character. God is not unjust, so as to overlook your works. This is really important and will become more so as we try to tie together Hebrews for the last four weeks, okay? Because apparently works weren't the primary problem in view here amongst the Christians here in Rome he's writing to. Uh, When he called them immature earlier on, for example. It's not works that's the primary issue. They were loving and serving each other. Um, Some actually believe that the author had in view what he talks about later in in Hebrews 10, uh, 34, when he's talking about how they loved each other so well that they were willing to give up their earthly possessions, maybe have their homes taken away in order to serve their brethren who were in prison at that point in time. Um, So it's really important for us to see that works were not the problem for this group of people. So let me clarify a couple of things. Here's what's not being said in this verse. He's not saying because you are doing these things, this is why you're saved. Okay, this is not a theology of works that's being taught here. What he is saying, what is being said, is that God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to himself. He's not going to change. He's faithful to his promises. And as we'll see in a moment, these works uh, were not for salvation. They were evidence of faith and salvation. Um, and God's promise is that we are justified not by our works, but by our faith. So in spite of their immaturity that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, God is not a liar, right? As it says in verse 18, and just a few verses later, God is not a liar. He's unchanging, and he's promised salvation not for those who do do enough good things, live a good enough life, 
but he's promised salvation for those who trust him by faith, who live by faith. So the first and primary reason for the author's confidence in his reader's spiritual standing and then their future trajectory, where they're going to be ultimately, is because of God's character. And that's good news. Why? Because what it tells us is that salvation is not based upon our own goodness, but it's based upon God's unchanging character and God's promises to us. Amen? Like, yeah, find refuge in that. The second reason for his confidence is uh, the evidence of their faith that is on display here. God is not so unjust as to overlook, so God's character, right? Your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So what we know about faith is that in itself it's invisible, but there is such a thing as a fruit of faith. There's ways we can determine real faith. Faith can be seen by works, right? And he cites both past examples and notes that there are present examples, and that's important because uh, in a genuine Christian's life, there should be fruit that is ongoing. Now, again, this is, this is important, what we see here in terms of how he describes their works, because what distinguishes these works as evidence of a sincere Christian faith is that they are done out of love for who? For God. Yeah. Not some other lesser motivation. He says, the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. There are many people who do good works in our world, great acts of love, and we are right to be thankful for those and to honor those works. But when our acts of love ultimately point back to Jesus and our love for him and his love for others, these are the kind of works that evidence a genuine, uh, act, genuine acts of faith. Um, and so the salvation that the author is confident that these people have that is already theirs. But there is a hint, even now, of a warning within this encouragement passage with what he says next. And in fact, uh, many commentators will say that the word that is translated, at least in our English, some of the other translations will translate differently, in our English standard version as and, is, could actually be translated but. There's a contrast that he is about ready to give here. So he's encouraging them, he sees them um, through God's eyes as truly saved, but there's a contrast that he draws out next in verse 11. So let's read that. And, or, but, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So he has a strong confidence of better things that belong to these believers, things that belong to salvation. And he expects these things to be true of his readers. And his basis is the unchanging character of God and the evidence of sincere faith that is shown through their lives. But in spite of, despite this, he expresses a strong desire that they show the same earnestness for what? Catch this. A same earnestness for having the full assurance of hope until the end. So hope, by the way, is virtually synonymous with what we'll see in verse 12 when he uses this expression, inheriting the promises. So eternity is in view here, all right? The consummation of their salvation is in view here. This is what he wants them to be growing in their assurance of their hope for, that they are co-heirs with Christ and his eternal kingdom, that that is sealed, that is done, that is already theirs, and so on and so forth, all that goes along with that future inheritance that is ours in Christ. So let me say this before we move on. What is hope in its simplest form or one way we could describe hope? Hope is a security in where you're going to be. 
after you die and an excitement about being there, okay? Ultimately, that's what we want as Christians to have growing inside of us. And why is this so important? Because when we have growing assurance in that hope, then we have a fuel for obedience here on earth. Contrarily, when that hope is wavering or diminishing or like a flickering candle, we lose that fuel for radical obedience here on earth and for confidence and who our God is and what he has done for us, okay? So two things I want to clarify here. Implied by the author's words here in verse 11 are a couple things about where these believers are in their walk and what his concern is for them. Number one, they seem to have a wavering hope, right? Though they had a genuine faith and were demonstrating it through their acts of love, their hope of inheriting the promises of God apparently was wavering and feeble, Okay? What was possibly going on here is that they were questioning their salvation um, and in some way lacked confidence about their future inheritance. There was an insecurity there. And then secondly, the thing that is kind of inf- we can infer is that they lacked an earnestness to pursue this hope. He says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. By the way, the same as what? Well, the same as their acts of love and service that he had just commended them for in verse 10. So he identifies that while they were earnest in their pursuit of love and good works, they were not as earnest about cultivating this full assurance of hope that the author here is talking about. And then in verse 12, I'll read verse 12 in context of verse 11. He says, but we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that, so here comes the reason why, you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So what are the reason, the reasons that the author has uh, for this desire that they would have the full assurance of hope until the end? Twofold. So that they wouldn't grow sluggish in some sense that we'll talk about, and so that their lives would follow in the footsteps of the faithful who'd gone before them, who inherited the promises. Right? That's the reason. So there's a lot that we could unpack here, even within these two verses in and of themselves, what I want to try to do in kind of the second half here is take the time to be able to tie together the threads from chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 12. Because here's what we've seen, if we're to kind of recount where we've been since chapter 5, verse 11. First, what does the author do way back then? He, he first admonishes the Christians for their prolonged immaturity, right? In five eleven, the author breaks away from all the Christology that we had unpacked throughout the first five and a half chapters to offer a serious pastoral exhortation, calling them immature in a way that was troubling and problematic. And he characterizes them as being dull of hearing. By the way, that word for dull there, nothroi in the Greek, it's the same word that's translated as sluggish in our passage today. That'll be important, okay? But here, back in 5.11, he's referring to their being sluggish in their thinking, Okay, the context there is theology. They weren't growing in their knowledge of the word. So he identifies their immaturity as being rooted in their underdeveloped theology. Okay, put a bookmark there. It's important. He explains it in terms of them not moving on from milk, which are the basic principles of Christianity, in order to get to solid food, which is deeper Christology. And he calls them unskilled in the word of righteousness. That word unskilled, it can mean untried or unpracticed. So They were unpracticed in God's word in some sense. And then furthermore, he contrasts them with the mature who have put their 
uh, who have put into practice God's word and have grown as a result. And then, of course, in Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, the warning passage, he warns them of the danger of persisting in this immaturity. Yet, today, he commends them for their acts of love. So here in verses 9 through 12, he acknowledges that they were putting God's word into practice, right? I mean, what is loving and serving each other other than a very fundamental command in Scripture that we're called to live out? And they were doing this. So they were earnest in their actions, though they were lazy or sluggish in their thinking and in their theology, okay? And then finally, the author had this concern that their lack of assurance of hope would eventually even dissolve their acts of love. He's noted that they're already sluggish in their thinking back in 5.11. Here he's encouraging them to be zealous for cultivating a security and the promises that accompany salvation, or else they may become sluggish in their actions as well. So we see these two essential uh, pieces of sanctification, of growing in Christ-likeness in view throughout these verses over the past few weeks. Number one, God's word is essential for Christian growth. Right? What, what Christian would disagree with that? Probably no Christian would disagree with that. Number two, obedience to God's word is essential for Christian growth. Who's going to disagree with that? And then we see that these Christians were putting God's word into practice to some degree, yet they were still immature. So what was short-circuiting the process of their growth in their life? I'm going to attempt to illustrate this through an object lesson. And this could be dangerous because I came up with it in the 11th hour, and I don't know how this is going to go. And there's an outlet right there, which would be a bad idea since water is going to be involved. So I'm going to back up here, and hopefully those of you over there can see me. Some of you have heard the analogy or the metaphor that's been given before, and I, I like it. It works. That in order for you to continue growing as a Christian, it helps to open it up. You gotta allow God to pour into you, but you also have to pour it out, right? How can you continue to grow if you don't pour yourself out, live out what it is he's teaching you so that he can then fill you up again? On some level, the Christians that the author of Hebrews is writing to was doing this. He sees evidence of their sincere faith, of, of their salvation in their lives. And so God had poured into them. There were some fundamental truths that they had embraced and they were living that out and acts of love and service in God's name, for God's name, okay? Here's where I would take this analogy a step further. In light of this author kind of taking the object, the, the goal of Christian growth beyond just God's word or, or obedience to God, okay? If we encounter the truth of God and we stop going back to God's word, we may be able to continue to pour out to some degree in light of what God's revealed to us, the basic things of salvation, who Jesus is, died on the cross for our sins, rose again from the dead, right? And that if we repent and trust God in faith, then we will have salvation and we're to live that out through loving those around us. Eventually, that'll probably run dry. And I think that that was going to become a problem here for these Christians. That's what the author was identifying. It's only when we go back to God in his word with open hands and a posture of being able to really receive from him, a hunger to know him more, 
a belief that there's value in God's word and that there's more for him to reveal to us, not just milk, but meat. Our capacity is enlarged. God can fill us with more when we trust that there is more that he wants to reveal to us through the scriptures. And when our capacity is enlarged, our knowledge of God grows. And the knowledge of God could be synonymous with a deeper assurance of our salvation, of the hope that we have that's secure in him. But of course, obedience is important too. We gotta pour that out to make room for God to continue to pour into us. I think it was John Calvin who said that the knowledge of God comes through obedience. Jesus says something similarly in John 14 when he says, it's those who know and keep my commandments that I will manifest myself to. So it's in the midst of obedience. He shows us things about himself and we grow. But if we stop, if we just make our lives about going around and serving and implementing what it is that we've encountered of God so far, we limit our capacity to grow in our knowledge of him and to grow in our assurance of salvation and what's to come and our inheritance in heaven. And so we come back to him with open hands and an eagerness that there's more, that he's bottomless, that his word is what we need to continue to get to know him as well as obedience. And with that open posture ready to receive and to learn from him, there's an even greater capacity that we have for him to fill us up and so on and so forth. I should pour that out now so that I don't stall Matt when he's trying to lead us in worship in a few minutes. All right. Let me try to underscore that by saying some things here. Here's what I think was going on in this church. These Christians had encountered and received the gospel genuinely. They had embraced the fundamentals of Christianity. They had lived out of this milk in their lives through love and service of each other. But for whatever reason, that's where it ended for them. They were not deep theologically. And they weren't pursuing theological depth. We don't know the reason. It could be just a general lack of motivation. Uh, It could be fear and pressure from the society around them. Um, They were afraid to go back to God's word and see what might be harder even to live out in, in the community around them if they were to continue to grow. We don't know. But they weren't growing in their knowledge of the scriptures, and so they didn't have solid food to put into practice. They had short circuited their growth process. And evidently, as a result, there were at least areas in which they were faltering in obedience, which is why the author had to warn them about the possibility of falling away and entering into this arrested state of a development, a hardness of heart of a kind. And interestingly, the author's main message here isn't what you would think, read your Bible more or be more obedient. He says the antidote to their problem is to pursue a strong sense of security in the hope that is already true for them. Interesting how he rises above the two fundamental ingredients for Christian sanctification and growth. Being formed by the word and being formed by living out the word. What were they doing? They were doing the latter. They were living out the word to the point of being able to give up their possessions out of love for the fellow Christians in their church who were in prison. But what is clearly the the critique here of the author of theirs? When we go back to chapter 5, they were still feeding on milk. Now, we could conclude they just weren't reading their Bibles, right? And we know they didn't even have the Bible in the formal sense we do today with all of the letters compiled as we have it. But we could, we could say in kind of a cliche way that they, they weren't reading their Bibles. But I don't think it's that simple. The author says they were dull of hearing. They were lazy or sluggish in their thinking. 
Remember what he wants to do. He wants to teach them about deep Christology. He started there, and then he had to rudely interrupt himself and stop to confront why he can't. He said, I want to continue to talk to you about these things, but I can't. You are unable to understand them because you are dull of hearing. So I think their issue wasn't obedience, ultimately, loving and serving. Their issue had to do with the word side of how we grow. But it wasn't that they weren't intaking the scriptures, it's that they didn't see the value of the scriptures. They kept on having to be fed milk versus meat because they didn't see its value. So they opened their Bibles perhaps half-heartedly, but they weren't sure it was the best use of their time. They would listen to sermons or sit in a Bible study perhaps, but it would go in one ear and out the other because they lacked a hunger for the word. So they were unskilled, he says, in the word of righteousness, not because they lacked exposure to God's word, but because they weren't really taking seriously what they were hearing. And what happens when you don't take something seriously you're being taught or you're disinterested in something? You don't absorb it. So you don't have anything new. You don't have anything, any meat to put into practice. You have nothing new to pour out, so you're not growing in your capacity for a knowledge of God, which again is synonymous with an assurance of your hope of salvation. And the main inhibitor for them, it seemed, is that they were stuck on milk. They didn't see the point. Maybe they were saying, who cares? You know, we get what Christ died for us. We, we get that repentance and then faith is what's necessary to be saved. Then you get baptized and so on and forth, so forth. Let's get out there and do the stuff that really matters. Let's serve. Let's, let's help those around us, which is important. It seems that the ingredient that was missing from their growth in assurance was that understanding God through his word was as important as living out God's word. And that, in fact, these two things are interdependent upon one another for Christian maturity to take place and for an eternal perspective to be cultivated. So a real practical question for you, do you struggle with an assurance of your salvation? Is that something you struggle with? Whether or not God is really going to be faithful to his promises in your life, whether or not you're really a son or daughter of the Most High God, whether or not he's secured a place in his eternal kingdom for you that can never be taken away from you. Are those things that you struggle with? We all probably have a natural propensity, a natural bent one way or another to be either students of the Bible primarily or practitioners of the Bible primarily. But it has to be both for us to not short-circuit the process of Christian growth. But here's the good news. What was in question for these Christians was not their salvation or their love for Jesus. The author was concerned for them being assured of what he could already see. That by their meager faith alone, God had saved them and was producing fruit in their lives. He could see it. But they were struggling with that assurance. And when our hope of eternal life is feeble, we struggle to be obedient, especially where it's hard. Maybe that looks like faltering when it comes to standing up for truths that are not readily accepted by the society around us or our friends or our family or the people around us. Maybe they were grumbling about their circumstances like the Israelites were in the wilderness. Have you ever stopped to think about, in fact, how hard would it have been to be them? To be nomads without a home wandering around in a desert and not grumble. And yet that grumbling was not acceptable to God. It's what got them in trouble. It's what got them to lose out on entering the promised land. Tells us we need to take disobedience in our lives seriously. God is radically gracious, but he's also radically holy. 
but there's an antidote that the author provides for his readers and for us. And that is that God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness through his word, as it says in Second Peter. Do you treasure the word? Do you recognize that it's an essential ingredient for growth in your walk with Jesus? That it's to be treasured, that it's precious, that it isn't just to inform you initially of who God is and how it is that you're saved, but it's something that is living and active, as the author of Hebrews has already said, and is ongoing in its importance in your life as a Christian. I want to conclude by reading to you 2 Peter chapter 1, part of it. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago in the context of how obedience is, as we talked about, is a necessary ingredient in coming to know God. Here's where we see the word of God, living out the word of God, and the assurance of our eternal destiny all come together. Here's what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, starting verse 3. He says, His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises. So it's the promises of God, his word to us, in which he's given us everything we need for life and godliness so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Okay? Then he goes on to talk about, but you can't stop there. You can't just be intakers of God's word. You also need to be practitioners of it. In verse 5, when he says, For this reason, make every effort then to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. These are all acts of obedience, living out of the character of God that's been revealed to us through his word. Why? Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about probably what was characteristic increasingly for the Hebrews. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So there's a forgetfulness that's happening when we're not both intaking God's word and living it out. And then here's where he brings it all together. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. That's the eternal security piece, right? For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. There's that word again. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. A confidence by which we will cross the threshold of earth into eternity and into heaven. That's what we need and want. That's what actually will continue to cause us to keep growing and will sustain us through adversity and the hard obedience that we're called to in following after Jesus. So do you want to live with a full assurance of your eternal hope? God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness through his word, but we also have to live it out. And we have to keep coming back to God's word as if it's bread for our soul, because it is, and then we need to live it out and rinse and repeat. Which one do you tend to lean toward? Which one do you overemphasize at the expense of the other? Because you need both if you're going to keep growing and if you're going to know where you're going. And as you do, God will confirm in you what it is that's already true about you, that he's made you his own, that he's secured your eternal destination with him. And this is where we want to be. And when we embrace both of these things equally, then we'll be ready for the meat of what God wants to reveal about himself to us 
which is where the author of Hebrews is going to go from here, back to Christ and unpacking deeper theology about who he is and what he's done for us. Would you pray with me? Father, I simply ask that you would help us to be people of the word and help us to be people who live out the word, that we may glorify you with our lives and grow in our assurance of hope to the very end. In Jesus' name we pray.